Good morning. My name is Kelly Scott. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Uh, if you are new to Trinity, I want to extend a special welcome to you this morning. Uh, I would love to meet you after the service. I'll be out in the back in the foyer after the service. Uh, I also want to encourage you, if, if you are new, to scan the code on the back of your order of worship, and that will lead you to a form where you can let us know that you are here and where you can let us know of ways that we might be able to help you get connected here. This morning, we are resuming a sermon series that we began back in the fall on the book of Genesis. In the fall, we covered the first 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, from creation through the fall of humanity to Noah, and finally ending with the division of humanity at the Tower of Babel. And so this winter and spring, we'll, we'll be in the second part of Genesis, chapters 12 through 50. Uh, and if you're good at math, you realize that's a lot longer than uh, Genesis 1 through 11. And so it will require us to be a bit more selective. But the timeline of Genesis 12 through 50 is actually much shorter than the very, very long period of time from creation to Babel. Genesis 12:50 covers just a couple of hundred years as it focuses primarily on the lives of Abram and his, Abraham and his son Isaac, his grandson, Jacob, also known as Israel, and then finally his son, or his great-grandson, Joseph. And so we uh, are diving into the life of Abraham today. And we're going to camp out there for a number of weeks. It's fitting that, that we would spend a number of weeks uh, in the life of Abraham, not only because there are 14 chapters about him, in the book of Genesis, but also because scripture describes him as our father in the faith. St. Augustine has a saying that, that the new covenant is presented in veiled manner in the old. For what is the Old Testament but the concealed form of the new? And that statement is never more true than it is in the book of Genesis as a whole, but particularly in the life of Abraham. The covenant of grace that I mentioned a minute ago, uh, but that covenant that we saw um, way back uh, in the garden uh, when God covers Adam and Eve's shame and then promises that Eve's offspring will crush the head of the evil serpent, which is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Th this covenant of grace begins to take much clearer shape in God's dealings with Abraham. It's as if God has a, a dimmer switch or dinner knob that, that he is, uh, did I say dimmer or dinner? Dimmer switch. Um, I'm thinking about food now. Uh, that, he, that he is turning up, shedding more and more light throughout the Old Testament. And that dimmer switch gets several early rotations through the life of Abraham. And so please turn with me in your Bibles or in your order of worship to the very end of Genesis 11, verse 27. One thing I should mention, that at this point, Abraham's name is still Abram. God's later going to change his name to Abraham, but it's the same person, and you may be, hear me alternating between the two. So Genesis 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. 
Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram and his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forward together, or they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Thankfully, uh, Drew prayed uh, for us in and, and this sermon that we would have receptive hearts and he prayed for the preaching. And so uh, I'm not going to add many words to his prayer this morning. Um, we know that the Lord heard that prayer. From what I understand, if someone is the CEO of a business or, say, the president of a university, it is generally considered a good idea for them to develop either a three or five or ten year plan for the business or for the school. And when this plan is in place, if things are run well, this plan then becomes central for the day-to-day operations of the business or school and how they are run, as well as for how long-term decisions are made, all of them being oriented now around fulfilling this plan. Three to ten years is, is generally seen as a reasonable time frame, depending on the industry, for which there won't be too much uncertainty or unpredictability. But even then, we know that there are many times in which these plans are upended or become outdated by technological and cultural changes or by other unforeseen circumstances. And so in some industries, six to 12 months is the new three to five years. But regardless of the time frame, an institution's strategic plan is foundational for their work. I say this because it's difficult to overstate 
just how foundational and monumental this morning's passage is for our understanding of God's plan for his world. Because in these verses, God doesn't give us a three to 10 year strategic plan for Abraham's life. He gives us a plan of redemption that has unfolded and is unfolding still over many thousands of years through all manner of obstacles and seeming setbacks and cultural changes, none of which are unforeseen for God. And so as we move through the passage this morning, we're going to begin to unpack this plan that he has given us. And my hope for us this morning is that by immersing ourselves in this plan and seeing the beauty of it, that we'll have a better understanding of what it looks like for us to orient our own personal day-to-day operations as well as our long-term decisions around this plan. This multi-thousand-year plan, by the way, uh, is known as God's covenant of grace. And this morning, we're going to see three aspects of that grace from our passage. We're going to see surprising grace, costly grace, and abundant grace. And so first, surprising grace. I think when most Christians think about Abraham, we think of a man of great faith who trusted God against all odds, who left everything behind, who even trusted God to the point of being willing to offer up his own son. And this is all true. This is what we read about Abraham and the brief New Testament bios of his life, which faithfully summarize what we see in the book of Genesis. And it's therefore easy for us to think, well, well, of course God chose Abraham. That makes complete sense. He's a man of great courage. He, He is a likely candidate to be our father in the faith. But there is much more to the story of Abraham, as we'll see both today and in the weeks to come. The opening of our passage this morning takes us back to Abram's roots his background. He's the son of Terah. He's from Ur and later Haran, both of which were centers of what is known as the moon god cult. Abram's wife Sarai and his sister-in-law Milcah were likely named after goddesses in the moon god cult. And sure enough, in Joshua 24 verse 2, which is also printed just below today's passage in your order of worship, God confirms, or or the scriptures confirm, Abram's pagan background. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Abram was not a choir boy. And if he is, if, if he was, he was singing in the wrong choir. Abram busts the myth that God's grace is for good people. Faith in the true God that had been present in his line going back to Noah and Enoch and Seth had either been given up altogether or more likely uh, it had been seriously compromised by trying to make it fit with the spirit of the age, trying to make it fit with the prevailing beliefs around Abram and his family. 
This is the Abram God visits and promises to bless beyond his wildest imaginations. He is decidedly not a likely candidate to be the instrument of God's blessing. He is, in fact, a surprising choice who by no means deserved God's selection of him. As we continue to read Genesis and the rest of Scripture, we we see that this surprising choice of Abram sets a pattern for the kind of person whom God uses to accomplish his purposes. We'll see it in Jacob, his grandson, a second-born son and a scheming deceiver. We'll see it in Joseph, the 11th-born son, left for dead, sold as a slave, forgotten in Egypt. We'll see it in Moses, a murderer, and a fearful, stumbling speaker who becomes God's spokesperson and the leader of God's people. We'll see it in Rahab, a prostitute who's joined into the family of God. We'll see it in Ruth, a widow and an outsider to Israel who gets a Jewish book written about her. King David, the youngest son and later an adulterer. The list goes on, including Sarai. Abram's wife, who later becomes Sarah, she is an extremely surprising candidate to be the mother of a great nation, as we're ominously warned in verse 30. She was barren. She had no child. Actually, this genealogy is is set up to, to, this is at the center of that little genealogy at the end of chapter 11, and is set up for that verse to be in the center, and for us to see that as the kind of the main point of that genealogy. She was barren. She had no child. She wasn't supposed to be able to have a child. And in this way, she foreshadows an even more unlikely, surprising movement of God's grace. She foreshadows the virgin birth of Christ. And so what we see is is that surprising grace is is baked into the DNA of God's plan to redeem the world. And more than that, it's, it's baked into everyone's life who knows Christ. In fact, it's, it's, it's a bit redundant or unnecessary for me to call it surprising grace. Because grace, by definition, is surprising. It's not logical. It does not fit our MO, our normal way of thinking of positive performance equals reward, negative performance equals punishment, a modus operandi that actually flows out of God's just character. But but grace happens when God chooses not to enact his just punishment on us, but rather in love to take our just punishment upon himself, which he has done for us in Christ. It is always surprising. Grace is God calling Abraham into blessing and life with him when he deserved to be cut off. Grace is God calling each one of us into life and blessing with him when we deserve to be cut off. And if we are currently not surprised by it, then we need to ask ourselves how much we are currently understanding grace. And I want you to to know that, that I say that as someone whose, whose heart is prone 
to grow cold, complacent, and presumptuous toward God's grace, and who needs to continually be reminded of the joyful, comforting, and restorative news that God has lavished his grace on me. This is why, friends, we need to be speaking the gospel into each other's lives, and we need to be making room for God's word to speak into our lives throughout the week, that we might be a people who live together in the surprising grace of God. And so we see in the life of Abraham, we see God's surprising grace. We also see in his life that God's grace is costly. We see costly grace. Abram is told in, in chapter 12, verse 1, literally, get yourself out. He's called to leave his country, his family, and his father's house. Essentially, he needs to leave everything he's ever known to go to a place that he does not know that God will show him. The book of Hebrews simply, book of Hebrews simply puts it, and he went out not knowing where he was going. It's really important for us to remember here what we already talked about, that, that Abram grew up in a family that was steeped in the worship of false gods. He, he was steeped in the worship of gods who could not save or satisfy. And so God is calling Abram here to make a clean break from these false gods and to worship and serve him alone. We actually see the fruit of this at the end of verse 7 and then again at the end of verse 8. Abram goes into the promised land and he, and he does not use the Canaanite altars for worship even though he was likely nearby some of their worship sites. He builds his own altars and he worships and calls on the true God now. God's call to him is costly. It is costly grace. But I want you to hear that it is still good grace. Because you see, costly grace only causes us to give up things that keep us from serving and enjoying God more fully. Whether they be good things that we give up or sinful things that we give up, costly grace only calls us to give up what keeps us from serving God and enjoying Him more fully. Cheap grace, on the other hand, leaves us unchanged. And so it's not true grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, who ended up giving up his life to go back into Nazi-controlled Germany for the sake of the gospel, coined this term, cheap grace, or at least he brought it into more common usage. And he says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's grace without discipleship. About 10 years ago, uh, in ministry to student-athletes at, at UVA, a question that I started asking the athletes occasionally was, uh, and it was usually in the context of some kind of scripture discussion, but, but I would ask them, uh, what professional sports team would you want to be on? I was basically asking them, you know, like, what's your childhood dream team? Whether it's the Red Sox or Liverpool or the Cowboys, none of which are my teams, or, uh, or an Olympic team, uh, whatever it is, what, what is your childhood dream team that you would just love to be on? And I would say to them, I, I want you to imagine that you get a call tonight from the coach of that team 
saying that you have a permanent starting spot on that team beginning next fall. And then I would ask, him, ask them if, if they in any way deserved this call-up. You see, I needed to make sure that they were thinking clearly enough uh, to realize that it would only be by sheer grace that they would receive this call, which is true for 99.7% for of them. It doesn't work if LeBron James is in your ministry. But, um, it, and if sports are not your thing, by the way, I, you can imagine a call-up from the London Symphony Orchestra, or you can imagine your favorite art museum offering you a permanent display. Uh, make it work however you need to. But then I would ask them a question. What would you do between now and next fall knowing that you were absolutely assured of this permanent spot? Would you train like never before? Or would you kick back and eat pizza and chips and drink soda while staying up late watching Hulu every night? No one ever went with the second option. Because you see, that would convey that they had no idea of the gift of grace that they had been given in being offered this spot. That would be cheap grace. Living in cheap grace means that we don't understand the fullness of what we've been given. On the other hand, the athlete who would be willing to die many deaths to common comforts as well as to laziness and even perhaps to dying to comfortable surroundings and relationships to go somewhere else and train for the next eight months, that person demonstrates that they understand the goodness and glory of what they've been called into. They understand that costly grace is still good grace. Through his call to Abram, God was not only using this costly call for good in Abram's life, that God might bless Abraham with himself, he was, also realize, he was also revealing how costly grace is the means by which God's blessing is extended to others. As verse 3 says, so that you will be a blessing. Ultimately, this, this blessing extended to others is fulfilled in the Son of God, leaving the comfort and glory of his eternal home in heaven in order to bring the grace of God to us at infinite cost. You see, Jesus leaving the comforts of heaven is foreshadowed in Abram's life, and it is the pattern of God's plan that all of us are called to walk in. It may not mean leaving the comforts of our hometown or of being near close relatives, though it will surely mean that for some of us. But sharing the grace of God with others will always be costly. It may be the cost of consistently opening our homes and schedules when we prefer to avoid the hassle and cost and to be alone and have quiet time uh, with our families. It may be the cost of, of spending energy in all of its various forms to reach out to someone it may be the potential cost of how others will see us when they hear about the hope that we have in Christ. Or how they will see us when we don't join them in everything that they talk about and do. It may be the cost of discomfort and getting to know 
and loving people who are not like us socially or culturally or ethnically. And maybe the cost of fear and trepidation and overcoming insecurities about using our gifts or about making Christ known. It will probably be all of the above for all of us, but it will be all of the above for us in the sense that we are all called to giving up our false gods that we've grown comfortable with and giving up looking to them for life. That is a cost that we are all called to pay. But whatever it is, it will be costly and it will be good. Jesus tells his disciples, no one who's left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. You see, the general pattern of Christ's kingdom, the general pattern of God's plan of redemption is that the cost is paid back to us many times over, not only in the age to come, but even in this age, Jesus says. Costly grace is good grace. And so we've seen the, the surprising and costly aspects of God's grace. Finally, I want us to see the abundant grace of God in our passage. Abundant grace. We could talk about the comprehensiveness of God's grace here. A good land to live and work. A people to love. And a relationship of blessing with God. But we're going to see these three themes more in the weeks to come. That would be a whole other sermon or three or more tracing these three these themes throughout Genesis. But today I want us to focus on the abundance of God's grace in its global scope. The end of verse 3, in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is absolutely beautiful. What we see is that from the very beginning of God's formation of the people of Israel, the plan was never for Abraham or the nation that came from him to keep God's blessing to themselves. Abraham was blessed so that he could be a blessing to all the families of the earth. The nations, the Gentiles of every tongue and tribe and nation were always part of plan A in God's covenant of grace. Sadly, the story of the Old Testament is largely the story of Abraham's descendants' failure to trust in the blessing of God and to extend that blessing to other nations. In fact, the, the Old Testament is so brutally honest about that failure that it's difficult to imagine how someone could say that anyone in Israel would ever make up these stories. It just looks too bad. And yet... Through all of these failures, God is turning up that dimmer switch. Through all of these failures, God is coming to his prophets. And he is revealing more and more about the descendant of Abraham who would come and extend that blessing throughout the world. Who would join the nations together in worship. Whose name is Jesus, the son of God. Abraham's offspring. Whoever blesses him, God will bless. And whoever dishonors him, God will curse. And so in the Gospels, 
while Jesus' base camp was the people of Israel, we see him crossing cultural and national boundaries. We see him healing Gentiles. We see him talking at length with the Samaritan woman and calling her to faith. We see Jesus praising the faith of a Roman centurion. We see Jesus telling his disciples that they must preach the gospel to all nations. And before going to the cross, Jesus proclaims that he will draw all peoples to himself. Just as all of us who are in Christ have received surprising grace like Abraham, and just as all of us who are called, just as all of us are called to receive costly grace as Abraham did, likewise, all of us are called to enter into the outworking of God's abundant grace to all the families of the earth. And just as costly grace looks different for different Christians, this will look different for each of us as well. Some are called to spend their entire lives crossing cultures for the gospel, as the Apostle Paul did. He was steeped in Judaism, but an apostle to the Gentiles, becoming all things to all men. Others will spend most of their lives sharing God's abundant grace within their own people group. But just as Paul rebuked Peter when he started to pull away from those who did not conform to his culture and ethnicity and religious scruples, Lord, never let us be guilty of pulling away from people who are different from us, who don't share our ethnicity, who don't share our culture. I pray that we would be a church that rather makes connections with people, that rather has eyes to see the people who are around us. I pray that we would be a body, continue to be a body who joyfully welcomes every tongue and tribe and nation into our midst. Through Christ, we have all been united by his blood. Abraham is our father in the faith. Whatever tribe or tongue or nation we come from, he is our father in the faith, not by blood, but by faith in Christ. We are united to him, and he is drawing a people from every tongue and tribe and nation to himself. Lord, let Trinity be a place where that is happening. Let's pray together. <clears throat> father, we continue um, to pray and ask that you would make us a church that shares in your abundant grace to all the families of the earth. Lord, make us a place of welcome. Make us a place where people sense and feel your grace here. Lord, we know that this will only happen as we ourselves are reminded daily of your surprising grace. And as we are reminded daily that costly grace is good that you never seek to harm us you only call us to be drawn in deeper to yourself and so i pray lord that you by your spirit would be doing that in my life what i pray for my brothers and sisters that you would be doing that in all of our lives and it's in jesus name we pray amen <clears throat>